My name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge from the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. In this episode, I am joined by none other than Francesco Cordois. Now, Francesco and I have known each other now for almost four years, and our journey started as simple as I was trying to sell him a jacket at the Valence store in Soho, New York City, and we got to talking, and eventually he hired me as my first job out of college at his brand consultancy, Exultant, and from there, we've become fast friends, and I've helped him on many projects, and I have learned more from him than I have most other leaders that I've worked for in different fields. And our conversation ranges from everything from creativity to design to the importance of art and architecture in modern society. And without spoiling any more of the conversation, I will just let you enjoy the conversation between myself and Francesco Courtois. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. are good francesco welcome to the show thanks um so i've worked with francesco now since 2016 so almost three years that we've worked together wow. yeah. uh and uh i think the best way to start this is really by introducing yourself so i'm going to ask you uh what did you want to be when you grew up it's interesting uh that you asked that question i uh i think that it's unusual for people to actually know what they wanted to be when when they grew up, when they, when they were young. But for some reason, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be an architect. And, uh, in the beginning there was a little bit half scientist, half architect. There was a weird, uh, uh, intersection where, uh, my fascination with, uh, research and understanding things in depth, uh, revealed itself. But I think that part of, uh, what was interesting about that choice was, it really highlighted the difference between the European side of my family and the fact that I grew up in Canada, uh, in Italy, um, architect is, is considered the very coolest, best, most amazing thing you can be because it combines, um, you know, in theory, education, sophistication, um, and the arts. So unlike the United States where you would say, you know, marry doctor, lawyer, accountant, um, in, in Italy, if you're an architect, that's literally your title. They would, they would say that as somebody else would say, Mr. Or doctor. And so architecture had always been the thing. And, and where did that take you right out? Like, how did that bring you to America? It was interesting because at the time, uh, when I was living in Toronto, I knew that I, I wanted to, to see the world live in other places. I didn't. Uh, I knew that I didn't want to remain um, at home. Uh, so at the time, Toronto's university, where my education could have been next to free, uh, hadn't had a dean of the architecture program for a number of years. Um, and I had heard about Parsons School of Design, which back then, of course, this is you know pre, pre-computers, pre-internet. Um, that was the era when for design in the United States, you really did go to New York. That was the epicenter. 
uh, and there were really only three schools here. So FIT, which was obviously fashion focused, Parsons, which was a little bit more broadly based, but had a great uh, environmental program, and uh, the Cooper Union. But back then, what was interesting is that Parsons had a very specific policy that the degree I received in my my first degree was a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Environmental Design. And it was considered, if you got a Bachelor of Architecture, that it was considered a terminal degree and you were just a draftsman. So at that stage, even just by going to Parsons, you basically understood that you would be going on to getting a master's degree, which was still relatively unusual back then. And you went to SciArc for that? I went to SciArc and moved to LA for that one, yeah. Do you remember the day you decided to pursue down down this path to become an architect like the day you decided hey i'm gonna go to parsons and then i'm gonna commit my next you know what eight to ten years to yeah building this i think that like i said i i truly even my mother still has drawings of when i was eight nine where i would be uh always (laughs) with a lot of uh, useless precision drawing out things on you know graph paper and plans and this and always talking about spaces so i think that in the back of my mind it had always been there but where it really changed was the i went to a very particular high school and they actually offered two different types of drafting and i took both so i took both architectural and engineering uh, drafting and My high school at the time was one of the first ones in Canada that um, had uh, periods that were an hour and 10 minutes long. So effectively, it meant that I was taking half a day of drafting instruction every other day. And I started that in grade nine. And uh, at the same time, my father and most of my family that was in construction, I used to uh, spend my summers working on construction sites specifically to kind of try to understand how buildings got built. Um, so, so yeah, no, it was definitely, I think that the equivalent of high school was when I sort of stopped saying that I would be doing anything other than that. And I really discovered Parsons more in grade 10. And where did that all take you? In terms of career or in terms of just the New York experience? I mean, I mean, everything, you know, I think, I think career more, how did, you know, architecture school, especially SciArc, you've, you've given me some pretty, you know, visceral stories in the past of sure, certain sure. things that have happened and how that sure. led into your career. And, and because, you know, people nowadays look at you and I would say that you, the best term that I like to call you is a brand evangelist. Sure. And um, most people think about you as a marketing, branding right. background, but you, right. you're, you're a classically trained architect. Absolutely. I think that what was, what was interesting about it is that New York definitely at the time, and again, I think that there will always be a bit of a scrim separating generations before and after the internet only because the the sequence of coming to New York first when uh, Parsons at that time wasn't even didn't hold classes on Fridays because the New York was the art word was considered very social this was still you know, the 80s. This was Studio 54 and the factory and, you know, Nels and all that stuff. So in the end, it was really considered a place where uh, architecture was still very tightly wound up in the art scene. And you were expected to be out and about seeing stuff for yourself, right? Where once the uh, internet came along a few decades later, 
you know, what you do start to see is a certain apathy about going and seeing for yourself because people sort of, you know, look at things online or look at other people experiencing things and it becomes good enough. Whereas back then, if you didn't actually go see it for yourself, the best you would see is like on print or maybe in television. So um, Parsons definitely taught you the value of going out and seeing. And even back then, Parsons had campuses in other parts of the world as well, the Paris and LA campus. LA, when I ended up going there um, for my graduate degree, was interesting because LA very much was all about artifice back then, right? So it was definitely about the movies and definitely about the theme parks and the, not resurgence, but the, the, the architecture in Los Angeles, a lot of the signature things were designed by set designers. So when they got built, they were incredibly extravagant. And I remember being oddly very affected by one friend uh, at SciArc who managed to somehow rent um, one of the homes that had been built to house the Munchkins uh, during the filming of The Wizard of Oz, and they still existed. So they were these tiny little studios. And, you know, there's just a, there's a surrealness to the experience in Los Angeles, and it was just at the point where, uh, since it takes so little to build stuff in LA, um, the architecture was very, very free. And so that, that was the very beginning of a migration of architects to the West Coast to actually sort of start to experiment with a lot of the type of architecture that was being done at the time. And SciArc, uh, my graduate school, was fascinating to me because it was the only one that I knew of that all, all it taught was architecture. There was nothing else. The, the school existed um, to teach architecture and its principal was only working published architects would teach there. Um, so it was the two men who uh, started a very influential firm called Morphosis, Michael Rotundi and Tom Main, um, were the respective heads of the undergraduate and graduate degrees. And it was an incredible time to be there. It was, um, uh, the school had only been open for like a decade or, or two. And uh, so it was incredibly disciplined, but incredibly free. Not free in cost, though. No. All of this, cost, <laughs> all of it cost a, a small fortune. And I think my family really did resent that kind of notion that if I'd stayed in Canada, I think that, um, you know, my degrees would have cost in total a couple of thousand dollars, like, you know, to go from a, a country uh, where education was considered uh, almost like a right yeah. um, to come to the United States. Even Par Parsons at that time was more than Harvard. Like it was a very expensive was an art school. program to go to. And then living in New York was cheaper. It could be cheaper than it is now. Yeah. But uh, it was still a, it was a really rough town in the 80s, which is why I think people who were here in the 80s really loved it. Because yeah. uh, you did get to mix with people. And uh, I, th I think the question might be that you hear a lot nowadays and people try to compare the education system in other countries to the education education system in America. Sure. Do you think, or how different do you think your career would be now if you had stayed in Toronto and gone to public university? You know, I think that the, the universal truth is that talent is everywhere, right? So I don't, I think that education, um, education refines what is there, but will never sort of build, you know, something within a person, uh, just because you study with somebody famous or or are at a school filled with talent, I think the arts are different. If if 
if the talent inherently isn't there, um, it's never going to happen. And there are plenty of people. So Toronto, uh, you know, my, my, the bulk of my family still lives up in Toronto. It's become an incredible design capital. Yeah, it has. And I think that uh, that's one of the positive things about the, the internet is that I think people are aware that great design exists everywhere. I think before, uh, you know, when you would travel, you know, when I started my, my working career and would travel, you know, to places when you would get off a plane in Tokyo, it, you might as well have landed on the moon. There was almost no way to prepare for traveling. And the stuff that you would see in new towns that you visited would be absolutely, even everyday objects would be very different than what you had back home. And so it was kind of, it was something that you had to really be open to immersing yourself in because there was no way to replicate whatever your comfort zone was, you know, back home. Um, so Toronto, I think now, um, I, I find it is um, a great example of also what you see in, in places like Copenhagen and stuff where young people are migrating to these cities that are very culturally rich, but are much more affordable. Yeah. And then design work happens there, both in uh, more formal company settings, but also the freelance and sort of side hustle part of, of that kind of work um, has become much, much more rich, much more rich. And Toronto's also entering the world stage because tonight they could potentially win the NBA that's right. finals. That's right. And, uh, you know, that's huge because... <laughs> that's going to be pandemonium. Yeah. Uh, and, well, pandemonium in Toronto is like people setting off, I don't know, a firecracker. It's not... <laughs> there won't be yeah. riots in the street. But I think that it is... Uh, it's been fascinating to watch because there's this inherent humility in coming from Canada that I think is a... it's. Humility might be the wrong word. It's uh, a kind of quietness to the spirit about not wanting to over-celebrate yeah. successes because I was looking at friends who are, you know, wildly excited. Um, but I'm going like, well, but we had the Blue Jays, which were world champions for years in a row in, in baseball and, of course, hockey. Yep. Uh, now there is no winning team that isn't basically 90% Canadian. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> irrespective no. of where... They are. And so basketball, you know, people are being harsh on the Raptors. And I'm just like, you know, to go from zero to 20 years later, you know, winning against especially a team where people kind of just assumed that they would knock Toronto out in four straight games. Uh, yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting to see. But I think that this plays into humility, right? It's uh -huh. like the fact that, it, you know, the Golden State Warriors, you could tell the first game they walked in, like, this is going to be a walk in the Park Absolutely. Series. And now they're down 3-1. Absolutely. And and the thing that was kind of interesting is that it is that Canada has always been a really good sort of uh, underdog, yeah. you know. But it is also really interesting um, in an urban design and architecture way that that there was an, a huge swath of land in downtown Toronto that uh, was the old rail yards. Yeah. So it was like suppressed, like almost the equivalent of four stories down um, that the city had kept undeveloped specifically because they kept bidding for the Olympics to go to Toronto and they never gave never it to it. Toronto. Yeah. No, it's always like, no, you're not, you know, sorry. You're, yeah. you're kind of, you're, you're an interstitial city. You're not New York and no. you're not, Rio. So yeah. there's really no reason to come there. And the last time, of course, that they had the Olympics in Canada and Montreal, you know, that didn't go too well. So, yeah. um, but I, I think that, you know, universally, I think what's nice is in some of the smaller, um, not smaller, in different cities in the world, what's great is that 
even though the internet has become a little bit of a leveling thing, um, there are still local influences that you will always see sort of manifest in design. And so I think it's really, it's, it is still fascinating to go and see with your own eyes and to be there for a while. I think um, it's, it's part of the most powerful way of mixing up, you know, what your own personal influences are. Yeah. And I think speaking of travel within Canada, yeah. I mean, to me, of country, all the countries I've been to, I've only been to 20 or so. Yeah. Um, Canada is by far the most beautiful country I've ever been to in my entire country. life. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like they said, New Zealand and Canada are honestly like usually put at the top of the two list of in terms of, yep. you know, Canada is the northern New Zealand and vice versa. Yeah. Because yeah. um, you have everything from Toronto, which is, you said, a beautiful urban landscape. And then, you know, Banff in Alberta is one yeah. of my favorite places in the entire Absolutely. world. I think Canada, like, you know, for the longest time, it is one of the largest countries in the world. So obviously very varied. And um, the, the, when I was growing up, it was interesting because 85% of the population of the country lived between Toronto and Montreal within five kilometers of the border. Yeah. But the, the, you know, you grow up in a country where you're like, well, we have three whole provinces that are nothing but wheat and, you know, flat and level as God's judgment. Yeah. You get Toronto, uh, which was its own thing on the great lakes, but is in a province that is, you know, millions of lakes and most of the fresh water in the world and you were really casually living in this spectacular setting and then as you say like you know the bookends the maritime provinces on the east are gorgeous montreal and quebec are both gorgeous you know beautiful cities and then you have the rockies on the west coast in vancouver which at the time everybody thought would just basically be a fishing village forever <laughs> and, and now all. it's like you know i think you know one of the most invested in cities in the world and like a real leader in green technology so it's it's a uh, it's it's very interesting to see um that that was able to flourish even though we have a much larger border than the united states has with mexico like we have um you know just an undefendable um uh, border between the two nations, whereas New Zealand has that kind of splendid isolation, yeah. just like Australia has, where they really can, um, it can make them feel very separated. But nowadays, that's becoming uh, an interesting theme around politics and travel around the world, like, you know, the European Union, which I think is a great thing. Um, you know, you're seeing the Beijing out of culture is their fear. Yeah. And so there are so many rules and regulations just to make sure that... Um, places don't become too vanilla, yeah. which is curious. I, I think with some of the privacy laws that you is enacting these days, though, mm -hmm. it, it really is doing the opposite of what they intended to. Absolutely. Because by, by, by limiting this free speech and limiting, you know, they passed that law and it's going to go into effect unless something magical changes. Or basically, if, uh, you know, an article is writing a, an article, an article, if, if, a, if a writer or an editor is writing an article about, just say, a video on YouTube, they have to give, like, direct credit to the person who made the video on YouTube. And they also then have to give the person a portion of the proceeds if they were to sell it, which is right. kind of destroying the idea of news because it's like you basically destroys and limits anyone to comment or make a comedic take on it or just give their opinion on something. Right. Cause like we, we have this idea now where it's like, we'll sh I'll share images all the time of people that I didn't take the photo. Right. right. But I'll always give credit and talk about who, who, who actually shot the photo, yep. but that's how you share work. Right. Yep. If every single photographer ever or architect only could, you know, work off of their own ideas and not, you know, sample. Like, what, what would Kanye be without sampling? Yeah, and, right? and it is, I think it's it's kind of interesting because, again, this is, 
you know, it's not the same as travel, but it's how ideas really do kind of get out there and travel the globe pretty quickly. And what what you're starting to see happen is this kind of odd Kardashianization of content, right? Where you are the only place where you can actually harvest content from is theoretically the talented amateur who doesn't care about being paid. The currency they're looking for is exposure. But then the person who harvests that content has to become a trusted brand. Like they're not going to give it to some guy named Joe. But if Joe has a popular podcast, then they'll, they'll not only let them use it, but they'll alert them when they have stuff. So it's becoming a very different, the filter is not the trust of the medium. The filter is the trust of the person. And that, that leads to some very scary stuff like we're seeing now where you can truly not only edit what people are seeing, but edit out the part that would, would make them see the other side. Like you can be very selective. So I think that, um, Europe and everything that is happening there is just Europe is a grand idea. And I think that they were correct to try to build the union. I think what's interesting is traveling in Europe in the old days was a thousand visas and 20 different types of currency and no way to wire money back and forth. Like it was pretty hellish, you know, but um, just now with barriers to travel coming down and the consistency of the euro, it really has allowed people to kind of uh, experience more of Europe in one go. Yeah, thanks, Germany. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and and the one thing you mentioned a few minutes ago, Australia. So yeah. you spend a lot of time in Australia. Yes, in warm, the past, warm Canada. Warm Canada. Yeah. In the past five years, how how much time do you think you spend in Australia? Um, without alerting the authorities, I mean, I would I would say I, I would I would say like a good quarter of my time. Yeah, and in some years, it's uh, it's. You know, when I say that, it's not, it, I don't travel like other people travel. It's like when I, when I go to Australia, I'll be there for a couple of months. Yeah. And um, it really does remind me of Canada. I yeah. mean, it's another colony country. Almost all of the social institutions are relatively the same. Um, the people are, are lovely and, and, and not innocent, like lovely and innocent and doing their own thing and really now stepping onto the world stage. It, it, in terms of population, they're exactly like Canada was about 25 years ago. But it is, uh, it's a fascinating culture to me because they, I really do think that their future is more based on being what old Hong Kong was. They are a bastion of the West surrounded by the East. And so even though they have the traditional immigrant cultures, you know, Greek and Italian and German and all of the people after the world wars, um, their cuisine is naturally sort of infused with a lot of Asian flavor. Like, so it's, it's an interesting mix because they don't see it as Asian. They see it as Australian, but you yeah. really do see that kind of the omnipresence of, um, the fact that they are, they are part of that sphere, which of course is ascendant now. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how Australia develops over the next generation or two. But it's interesting because the way the United States saw Canada in terms of natural resources 30, yep. 40 years ago is now how China sees Australia. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And, and I think what's also interesting is that Canada, which is massive and is also has a very important role to play in strategic defense for the United States, um, we are now seeing, you know, part of what made Canada so uninteresting to the United States is, you know, 
two thirds of it was under snow, right? Like yeah. the tundra and, and everything else. And, and then you get Australia where the same thing is happening, where it's a massive, it's a, it's, you know, the only country that is its own continent. And you literally have, uh, I think a good three quarters of it is Bush, yep. which is again, beautiful and pristine because it's unoccupiable, but it is also becoming, um, very important and, uh, and you can tell that certain countries just don't understand why Australia isn't willing to turn their entire nation into a pit mine to yeah. give them, you know, iron and of course beef. So, yeah. so it's a weird, <clears throat> I think it's interesting that it's happening exactly at the time where environmental sensitivity is making a lot of these things really difficult. Yeah. To Cause I think, I think Australia looks at Mongolia and you look at what Mongolia has turned into, you know, beautiful yep. countryside that's barely inhabited for yep. most of it, but yep. the amount of mining and, cattle production that's been going on there has yeah. just destroyed the entire country. I think it's, it's always interesting that it's, I think this, and I, I know we're probably going off topic on the podcast, but this kind of issue of how much damage cattle yeah. has done, right? Yeah. Between uh, cattle farming in, you know, raising the Amazon and this conversion over to meat diets for an area of the world that literally uh, never had that dependency um, is going to be interesting because I don't, I don't, Think it's sustainable no. and i do think it's kind of culturally we're, we're seeing uh we're seeing you know the bastion of not eating meat slowly converting over to eating meat and so it'll be interesting to see whether that's just a temporary swing um because touching on something you know you said earlier the the thing that's fascinating is no matter how much these global influences do take people through a period of consolidation I think everything in the maker movement is the reverse of that now. So it's sort of like, yes, there's no reason to make your own beer. But now people are really kind of getting back to the notion of saying, I want to understand, I want to understand how this, how this happens. And I want to, I want to, I want to go back to the original way of getting this thing done. So and let's talk about that maker movement. Cause it's we, something that sure. you and I talk about often, yeah. um, where this idea that, you know, I think America became a country of consumers really back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, sure. post-war, you know. The post-war boom in general. Post-war boom yeah. in general, you know, every, consumerism is huge. All the houses look the same. Everyone mm -hmm. wants the new shiniest appliance. And I think we kind of carried that through into the 2000s. But I think nowadays, more and more, you have people that say they want these, you know, handmade, artisanal. They want to go make their own thing. Like thrifting is larger than ever. Right. And, and where do you think this trend is going, you know? Well, I think, you know, when you, when you look at the way the world developed over the last century you had the center of of artisanal manufacturing was europe that had been bombed into powder twice right so while reconstruction was happening there that was an intense period of europe really trying to salvage most of its history when the artisans that did it were still there but at the same time that was also when some of the most skilled artisans in the world at the worker level were emigrating. So you go to Australia, you go to Canada, you see stone masonry like you simply will not find anymore because it was that generation that literally that's what they did uh, in a new country with new stone, you know, and so it really affected architecture, right? Where my fascination comes from. But I think that um, at the same time in America, you know, people came back from the wars and of course this was the period where the suburbs really started to thrive. So for the first time in history, people started to not work where they lived. So small artisanal manufacturing never really happened anymore. And now you saw the city as the place where stuff got done. 
and then home as the place where you just frolicked in the field, you know, with your kids. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't think we ever knew what Ward Cleaver did, you know what I mean? But yeah. the maker movement of that era probably really expressed itself in the rise of Julia Child and Good Housekeeping, where people sort of felt that sophistication came from trying to figure out how to do things that were not part of their culture. Like, you know, so yeah. Julia Child trying to teach basically French cuisine to American women, you know, at the same time that Jello was a really important part of dinner, yeah. um, was, was kind of fascinating. And so I think whenever you push people into periods of <clears throat> isolation, you get fascinated by the maker in the community, whether they're selling or not selling. You would be fascinated with the woman who really knew how to put a pattern together and make a really good dress. You, you, and you would start to see it wasn't necessarily commerce, but as, as stuff becomes easier to get, people have more of a desire to still express themselves. And because it's no longer a necessary thing, it tends to become very sort of fancy. Like, you know, you're going to, yeah. you're going to kind of do stuff. And then um, now I think the artisanal movement really came from fascination. And again, the internet and, as, internet and access to information. But I do think it also came in part from thrift, you know, where yeah. people do want to kind of... Uh, figure out what to do because they can't eat out every day because it's really expensive and they don't want to eat at McDonald's. So again, it becomes this whole sort of charting of where does the food come from? What am I cooking? How am I yeah. doing it? And then sharing it, right? So that's where your generation definitely, uh, the sharing is important because I think it is um, more experientially driven, right? So where experiences used to be made in grand statements and architecture and, and big brand statements, now, you know, we've gone through a period in the 80s where you started to get down to not only brands starting to stand for something, but also the notion that brands could diffuse up and down to, for accessibility. Um, and then now when we're in this sort of very wasteful fast fashion uh, period where part of what it did is it destroyed seasonality, it destroyed collections and, and, you know, what color is popular this season is not something I think anyone from your generation has ever said. No. So that that just allows you to have whatever whatever you want to sell. There is no season, um, but I think I think that last year in the United, I'm not sure if it's the United States, but 369 billion dollars worth of goods were returned, yeah. and it's that, that kind of right. thing where where uh, there is now there's no more period to it. So people will purchase and return on whim, and yeah. that's actually where the waste comes from. Not not. You know, Louis Vuitton is getting really bagged on because they destroy a certain amount of product every year that they can't sell, which is to keep brand integrity. Yeah. But um, really, the the bulk of the waste in the industry is is more people buying the five dollar t shirt and throwing it away and buying another five dollar t shirt the next the day. The Zara and H and M and Uniqlo. Yes, world. if you want to say names, yes. Yeah. But it's no, like it's, it's okay. You know, and it's sort of it is, shots. it is definitely you know it's it's uh, a strategy that most people don't realize the reason it's more inexpensive is it's it's put together very inexpensively and it's not meant uh, Zara's original principle um, was that the clothing could fall apart after eight washes because it was so inexpensive that people would simply buy another one they'd be past it you know yeah. and that's a really that's probably one of the most 
self-indulgent examples of like what culture now does. And I think that with that, but also the idea behind Zara is that because you're buying hundreds of pieces of clothing in a year, mm-hmm. they're maybe not even going to get to wear it eight times. But, so to them, it seems like, oh, exactly this stuff's right. great. It lasts me two years. But it's like, okay, how many times do you actually wear that piece? Exactly right. But it's it's also that because there is no seasonality, if you return it to Zara, they just put it back on the rack. Like they're not yep. they're not worried about, you know, people like finding the unique thing. It's a very, it's an interesting confluence of trends that you see in vintage and resale and everything else. But I think that... But, part of the filter and something that you definitely see when you travel is this kind of notion of people forgetting what good quality looks like. So when they actually see, uh, you know, um, uh, a bespoke tailored pair of pants that literally fits you and lasts you for however many years because of the high quality, uh, the stuff from Zara is definitely designed for the youth youth market because it it can't be tailored it can't be anything like that so not bagging on zara it's like it's just interesting to see that it's it's what pushes people to the edges so because it has to um because there's no seasonality and because the patterns remain pretty basic what you've seen happen is the colors and the patterns and the the details on clothing has become psychotic. Like it's just, it's almost like we're living in a, in a poochie print world now. And so you're, you're definitely, you know, people are shaped by forces, whether they see them or not. And that's the larger landscape of what has happened. And the fact that it has created three of the wealthiest men in the world for, uh, especially Uniqlo and Zara, um, you know, it's fascinating because I think both, both those men started those companies in their 50s yeah you know so it's a it's been a phenomenon a phenomenon that is uh really shaped the world but a lot of the brands that you and i have worked with have really done a lot of positioning to almost protect themselves from this idea of fast culture and return culture yep. and i think like you see on the subway every day you know casper mattresses for example yep. right you can sleep on it for 100 nights and you can return it if you don't like it and i yep. think that kind of statement you know puts trust in the consumer where they're saying oh you know i could return this but it's so good and everyone likes it. Like, why would I return it? I just find those things really, it's, it's really interesting because the, you're, you know, you're now at the point where there's very little, there's very little you can do, um, from the retail side when you're battling with things that are available on the net, right? So the whole Amazon impact, right? And, uh, people forget that our country had a very different jump start for online, um, because, for the first decade that Amazon was a thing, the government couldn't figure out how to tax purchases online. No. Right. So what's, what was beautiful about that is you bought online because it was tax-free, not anything else. Then when that started to sort of fade, there was the seduction of free shipping, right? Where that was what would get people to buy. And now people expect to be able to return after a half a year. Yeah. Uh, they expect you to pay for it, the company. So... I not only want to get my money back, I expect you to pay to ship it back to you. And it's something that is used, so you can't sell it. Yeah. So where people think the mattress that you return after 100 days goes is... is Probably lit you know, on a fire in New Jersey. Exactly. Like, yeah. the, like you know, and again, it's, a, it's always that weird thing of they don't associate... You always have the right to change your mind. You always have the right to return things that don't live up to expectations. But we're at the stage where people are returning things because they simply don't want them anymore. And they don't have to prove that they never used them, which yeah. is just, it's renting stuff for free, which is, a, so something has to change. Yeah, something will. Um, but it is definitely, I think it's more about 
the artisanal movement is back to that place. And clothing is a good example because you do see the difference when you wear something that is very high quality and very um, something that will last you for a long time. Um, and then because of that, it becomes a much more classic look. So it'll probably, you know, the metronome swings back and forth. So the, the generation that comes next will probably want very authentic goods, very um, a lot uh, less variability on day-to-day stuff. So we'll see. And I think in the in the kind of the trend and the vein of brand experience, so your own company, Exultant, yep. um, which I, as I said earlier, have worked for, yep. and you specifically since uh, November 2016. Yeah. What were the Long steps time. you? T- yeah. <laughs> there we go. I'm glad we haven't killed each other yet. <laughs> exactly. um, so, what were the steps that got you to starting Exultant? Um, I think that the the thing that was interesting is my career almost completely by accident um, put me in a position where. Um, I was either helping to start, define, or reboot new and existing brands. And I think that mm, designers are, are very intelligent people, very sophisticated people. Um, but, uh, especially back then the patois, like that they spoke to one another was very antithetical to the boardroom. So my Canadianness sort of uh, put me in this place where I was often sort of named to be the person who um, not only designed but intersected with the business part of the businesses, right? And so they're they're um, very powerful executives, all of whom were creative masters. Um, really did sort of hammer home that the people were buying the experience and the products, not just because the balance sheet really happened to work out. And that sort of um, became the thing where exultant, I started exultant from the notion of really realizing that while, while people felt I was a good designer and, and all those things, part of, part of the success of any design strategy is to actually have it be a strategy rather than whimsical, which at the time, you know, fashion and and the world in general just needed to keep changing season to season. Um, And so I think what it does is it allows me to take some things that are peculiar about me and the intensity of research and the kind of structuring of thought about how design and experiences can be applied uh, in order to uh, uh, make a brand allegiance between the company and the consumer um, that they're willing to reinvest in outside of this kind of notion of seasonality. So I think it's been uh, interesting because it sounds very arcane, but it's really more about providing clarity of thinking and a retail sensibility to companies that are, for the most part, still led by men who don't shop, right? So uh, what we see in companies led by men is (laughs) this kind of notion of it's always about efficiency and saving a penny here and a penny there. So it's a race for zero. Um, where in the end, that's why luxury sets itself apart because luxury inherently says, no, it's, this is going to be more rare, more expensive, more, 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 never sale, you know, all those things, um, which is, uh, not what they teach in MBA culture no. currently. And, and what is the transition like? Cause you've, in, in your history and past work for some of the largest brands in the world, yes. um, you know, McDonald's, Tiffany and co gap. And now you work for companies that are investing in the stores that 
build those yes. you know individual different brands. Yeah. So what has the transition been like from going from working for the creator to working for the supplier? I'd even you know it's interesting. It's uh, that's why I, I lucky that I get to be very selective about who I work with um, because you're starting t- you're starting to see the the people who invest in retail properties or in brands or all these things are either young people who want to learn their own way, which is fantastic, um, but could, could, you know, sometimes not need help, but just need a different perspective to kind of show them what's coming 10 years down the road so that a decision that seems could be anything today will have impact and at the very least will cost you money to change. But the thing that sort of, I think, set me apart by accident is just the fact that, you know, the list of people that I've worked for, the Disney's, Old Navy's, Tiffany's, Westfield from a property perspective, McDonald's from um, that perspective of being retail, it's a very odd shift to see a creative person do some pretty difficult work, you know, shepherding a brand to kind of reposition itself is difficult in the best scenario, but to come from high jewelry, to go to property, to go from property to, you know, fast food, um, you know, it's kind of interesting, but you know, I just see it as always like, well, the consumer is the thing that doesn't change. And that's what I really understand. And the experience is what we now have to offer. Um, and you can really map the difference between generations in terms of what draws loyalty, um, to a brand. So speaking of McDonald's precisely, yeah, you did a lot of travel when you were for McDonald's. Yes, uh, tell me what that life was like and how much you did get to travel. I traveled a lot. Like in the in the beginning, you know, with with the other companies, there was travel, but it was much more structured travel. Like yeah. there was a there was a reason you were going to capital cities around the world. McDon- McDonald's, uh, I, I worked for Global. And so I was their first ever global head of retail. And, you know, it started with them asking me the question, you know, did the world of retail have anything to teach McDonald's? And I was like, you're selling stuff, right? So like, what, what is it <laughs> yeah. that you think you are? Uh, because McDonald's really did sort of see itself as, you know, a company that was about operational excellence, and, you know, and I, I know that'll be broadly debated in the world, but they, they really saw themselves as being able to offer something inexpensively because of operational precision. Um, So with McDonald's, I not only was traveling the globe, I was traveling the globe to the little town in the middle of nowhere in whatever city because McDonald's was more about going to the consumer as opposed to the other brands that I worked for was you would go to them specifically. So it was kind of interesting because it had to, you know, it had to be both a big global brand and it had to be um, recognize cultural differences down down to an almost incredible level of specialization, you know. And and what was funny is when I was uh, working for McDonald's was the period of my life where I was really strictly vegetarian. So it was also yeah. kind of a a very it was just a weird position to be in. But you know you get you get to parts of Asia where McDonald's literally was the food that was affordable to those people, and it, it was. Uh, putting an American spin on what they were eating, but also, you know, wonton soup was there and dessert meant something and coffee meant something. So it was kind of interesting. It was, um, it was watching a big brand that was built on uniformity, really needing to learn that it had to be almost a very different country in every city, in, in every city, every 
country it was in, it had to be a different company. So. Do any of those trips stick out to you in terms of, uh, you know, McDonald's that you visited in such remote places that really kind of just hits you as the fact that a company this big from America can operate in a place like this and, you know, kind of almost assimilate an American value into their culture, but also an ounce of their culture into the, what they offer? Yeah, it was really, it was it was interesting when, whether the American flag was flown really high or not. Like in the yeah. end, the busiest McDonald's or one of them in the world is still the St. Petersburg store where I don't know what we had to do in order to make sure that meat was available every day. But for all joking aside, that was the place where Russians could get a like the lines would be down the street every day. But at the same time, I remember going to Taiwan and um, especially like the countries that are growing and, and booming in really weird accelerated ways to kind of make yeah. the global financial culture feel comfortable. Um, you know, our store was the shiny, clean, glassy, three-story building um, in a town that was really struggling to transform to modern. And I remember once leaving a store in Taiwan to head back to the airport and a 18-wheeler had overturned and fallen off, uh, you know, a ramp three stories in the air and literally landed in the street upside down crap everywhere. And people were literally just completely nonplussed. Like it just didn't phase everyone <laughs> anyway. And you're, you're sort of looking at it going like, that's not what this is supposed to be. So you really did feel the difference between cultures that were willing to sell their history to become more modern and cultures that had gone through that already. And were now struggling to retain anything that was, yeah original do you know and so you definitely see that um you know my, my two favorite cities for a long time probably still um were seoul and barcelona uh just because in both those cities you can literally kind of leave your hotel and walk down random alleyways and find the most amazing people shops experiences like you know little little things where you're not seen as an invader but you can definitely tell this is not going to change at all to accommodate you like this is and so i think that 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 maker culture all that stuff really does start to talk about people wanting to sort of burnish the parts of the past that they can that they can salvage yeah and i, th I think that that kind of idea that even my generation really is seeking that authenticity again i think mm -hmm. we're getting this you know full circle existence where mm -hmm. you know even though hype culture is huge for my generation you still sure. have this idea that you know although a new supreme t-shirt is great if you have one of the original 1994 supreme t-shirts you are you are you could be a millionaire mm -hmm. you know um and i think that you know where i'm going with all this is the idea that i think that that idea where as you said some of these places like Seoul and Barcelona are never, ever going to change. I mm -hmm. think that there's this part of American culture that's been built in the past, you know, 30, 40 years through consumerism that is something that half of it needs to change and half of it is something that's never, ever going to change about America. Yeah, I think the it's not so much that I think that Seoul and Barcelona are never going to change. What's interesting is that they're cities that didn't change in the first heady rush of America as gleaming city center and suburb. Yeah. But what's interesting now is that we forget that in America on any street, I see American brands or, or brands we've adopted like Uniqlo and H&M and, and Zara. 
But in those kind of cities, the main avenue will have those brands. And then everywhere else in the city is the original, authentic, mom and pop, you know, fourth generation shoemaker. And that's what I find fascinating is that they they have a, a safety valve in their culture where like the main street can be whomever is popular globally and one step away from it. I mean, the French are the perfect example of yeah, that, totally. right? Like, you know, on, on the Champs-Élysées, you'll see whomever, but you know, you go to any cafe and you're just like the, the suggestion that they change what they've been doing for, for forever is, is met with like, you know, yeah. let's say disdain. Yeah. <laughs> but, the plate you're eating on has been there for 40 years. <laughs> and it's just, I think that's where, I think where, where we're hovering now is, um, especially with the cost of education and the fact that simply people are getting to the point where we're like, well, we can't have a universe filled with 2.6 billion lawyers and, you know, 1.2 billion accountants and what, like the, somewhere you have to make money. Yeah. And um, so I think that what's interesting is that maker culture right now, I think is, of, uh, this is a gross generalization, but what's interesting is people are getting back into craft and the storytelling behind the craft, which is you know, what I consider myself a specialist in. But what we're now getting to is we're seeing the rise of and return of apprenticeship and skills that take 10 years to master. Like you simply, it's your interest is not enough, right? It's like, you know, you can, you can make beer in your garage pretty easily, you know, and that's valid and good. Um, but the second you then kind of go into this notion of I'm going to dedicate myself to being a lace maker or the guy who makes the gears for the, the watch. Yeah. Like that's, that's that kind of thing. I think fashion will come later, but I think people really do have a respect for the, for the craft and the stuff that takes a long time to perfect. And I think that as the antidote to the cost of going to university, I think a lot of people are really discovering the nobility of being able to make really beautiful things. And and I think you see that nowhere more than when you travel, right? Because the things that they make, um, whether it's about it, pride of the region, unique resources, a history and a legacy, people who can still teach that yep. craft, like those things, um, especially where it gets applied to things that you would never necessarily know because they're not part of your culture. No. Right. So it's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting and it's interesting to see how it can also, um, inform global advertising or trends or, or whatever. When you, when you see things like Fuori Salone in, in Milan, uh, where people and brands really do start to play around with that kind of merger of cultures in a much more disciplined way, because yeah. Supreme, Supreme, is great and and Jebbia did an amazing job with that but now that brand as well has been sold yes right so it's sort of if you're buying supreme you're mostly buying the idea yeah. of supreme and of drop culture or barber in general idea. yeah so it's <laughs> interesting it's an interesting uh change to see somebody who was able to maintain that energy for that long yeah and and you are a champion storyteller you know mm-hmm. that's that's what you are. you're a brand sure. evangelist um yeah. and so i'm gonna try to get a few stories out of you that you've told me before sure to repeat on here and uh going back to architecture school the most like i i've used the word visceral now i think five times in this conversation sure. but i don't know any other word to describe it but um tell me about your running with spiders at sciarc and what? you're you're allowed to pass on any, anything i ask but with sure. the brown recluse oh that one that was yeah crazy <laughs> 
um, I was uh, working for a great little company. <clears throat> and again, this was Venice in the 90s. Yeah, Venice Beach, California. Uh, yeah, for the so it's like truly Venice, like not yeah. what it is now, right? And and <clears throat> we, my, the graduate school was in, uh, basically in, in Venice. It was in uh, Playa. And we all lived in Venice because that was the cheapest place you could live. I mean, it was gang culture on the beach, people high, like all that yep. good California <laughs> energy. And uh, so I was working with uh, a company that was great, and we were cleaning out, um, we were cleaning out a shipping container that she had had on her property um, because, like, a porn studio was opening next door. <laughs> like, it was just like, like this Venice. weird. So we were just like moving stuff out, and I got. I did not realize, but I was sort of wearing, you know, sneakers with no socks. And I got bit on my Achilles tendon by a brown recluse spider. So didn't know at the time. Kind of obviously it wasn't painful in that moment. But it, you know, it's a, it's a very dangerous spider. And it in, where it bit me, because it was in the tendon, it basically created a flesh eating. Like it was a staph infection in my tendon. Yeah. So at that stage, um, you know, it almost sounds like a third world story because I kind of went home, the area got red, then it, the red kept spreading, then my legs started to swell, then parts of it started to sort of collapse, <laughs> which I sort of took as, oh, it's getting better. And I, <laughs> I went to a meeting with a woman who literally saved my life, uh, Bobby Weiser, an incredible woman um, whose husband is a neurosurgeon. And she's like, what is up with your leg? I'm like, ah, it's, I don't know what it is. It's weird. It's like, you know, but it's, it kind of feels like maybe it's getting better. And she's like, okay, we're going to the hospital right now. I'm like, no, we have this huge meeting with, you know, LAX and everything. And she's like, no, no, you're going now. <laughs> and I get to the hospital and it was, you know, again, as a Canadian who had access to healthcare my whole life and, yeah. you know, didn't really think about it. Um, this, the doctor kind of looked at it, went and brought in a few extra people. They went out for a bit, came back. Looked never at a good again, sign. Never a good sign. No. And he came back and he said, like, you know, I've consulted with my uh, partners and, you know, we think we have some good news. It's like at this stage, I think if we amputate now, we can save the knee. I was like, what? <laughs> what? He's like, no, no, no. This is like, obviously you've been infected. Like this is basically, it's eating the muscles in your legs. It's in your tendon and we can't get antibiotics into tendon because blood doesn't flow. So you're like, we kind of got to, if we, and, yeah. and it was weird because they were like, it will probably get to your knee in about four hours. So we need to decide now. You know what I mean? And I even was like, can I fly back home to Canada? Because you people are all nuts. And they're like, you won't make it. You know, yeah. so, so in the end, because then if once across the knee, it would have gotten into like, you know, the upper arteries, the, the main right artery, the and then yeah. it would have been everywhere. And, um, and so out of sheer stupid universal luck, uh, Augmentin was a new antibiotic. And I just, I simply refused. I was like, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't. Cause they were just loving the fact that if I kept my knee, then the prosthesis, you know, I probably would be able to, I'm like, you can't do that. Like, no, yeah, they're looking at it from a profit perspective. Yes, exactly. And so I ended up being without health insurance in an LA hospital for four days with seven, uh, lines of antibiotic going directly into my tendon. Um, and we managed to save my leg, but if, 
you know, it was kind of all those moments where you're kind of looking at people going, I literally could have died. I don't know how many times in my life. And yeah. it's not just in those small towns in the middle of China. Yeah. It's like in LA, yeah. you know? And so it's sort of, I keep, I, I love people who associate so much risk with travel and discomfort with travel. And I'm like, oh, that can be your backyard. Yeah. Absolutely. No, and especially in Australia, right? Oh, Australia, Australia is half of everything will kill you. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, it's, it's, and I, of course, it's a very, it's a lovely, safe country. But the first friend I had in childhood, because Canada, Canada is, is a special place and was incredibly special when I was growing up because we don't have the melting pot philosophy, right? The, the melting pot philosophy of the United States was always you came to America and you became American and yeah. you know, you landed and you literally you forgot your past that you wanted yeah. to be American. Right. Um, Canada has always had the position of the patchwork quilt, mm -hmm. right? We're yeah. like, you're Canadian, but of course you retain where you come from. That's part of our culture. Like, Please retain your culture. Yeah, no, no. And it's, a, yeah. I, I think it's beautiful because it's a weird kind of, it's not even tolerance. It's just, that's what life is, right? Yeah. People are from everywhere. The first friend I had in high school, uh, Peter, um, who was Australian, you know, we always used to laugh at him because he would just always like clap his shoes together before he put them on. And I guess it's like a safety thing that they teach children, especially for spiders and scorpions oh, in Australia. Right. So yeah. it's like, I'm like, that's bizarre. And I'm like, don't you know what kind of like hick patty did you come from? And, and he was like, no, no, this is like Sydney. Like, you know, it's so, yeah. it's just such a, a country that is so alive. Yeah with so many things that can you know do you harm yeah just i have a whole new respect for jellyfish just because of australia <laughs> yeah it's like one you know my generation grew up watching spongebob square pants where they're these like happy things that made jelly they're the cows of the sea world yeah. but in reality no. you know jellyfish always terrified me growing up off the coast of massachusetts jumping in the water because it just felt icky and yeah. i didn't like the feeling of jellyfish yeah. and then yeah. one day i got one that stung me yeah and I apparently, you know, you know me, I complain more than I should. And, uh, yes. and it was apparently like a, if, 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 if a box jellyfish in Australia, that what kills you in yeah. what, 30 minutes, yeah. if it stings you, yeah. uh, that's a 10. This yeah. is maybe like a point one. Yeah. And I was, you know, just, totally, you know, crying and totally. hysterical. And it's just, it's, it's always funny because it is really part of Australia's, uh, beautiful, tough, Paul Hogan-ishy self-reliance yeah. where it's like, oh yeah, there's like, you know. 50-50 chance today that you'll get stung on the beach. But as long as you make it out of the water, I think we got the stuff that'll save you. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's just kind of like, just carry on. Like, you yeah. know, like, and, and that's where, um, you know, big cities, especially uh, in America, you kind of feel that people are oddly insulated from certain things. And then oddly, we introduce elements of real risk, like guns and stuff into, yeah. into that you know. uh, environment. Whereas Australia and other places, they kind of just, they confront that there's danger in their day to day and they just understand how to deal with it mm. as opposed to having an eradication campaign or whatever. But it is still, they're, they're funky people. Like they're really. And I think it, it makes them respect nature more. Much, much more so. And, you know. and what's, what's sad is many of the things that they're confronting losing, like the Great Barrier Reef, they have nothing to do with yeah. why it is actually. Yeah shutting down and, they, and if right? they could it's stop like, it you know they would of course they would and it's sort of that's where this kind of issue i think today we saw that um random article on you know genetically modified wheat having been found growing in a field where it had never been planted and yeah. the consequences of like places like japan saying well i don't know if we're gonna 
get any American wheat until we figure out what this means. You yeah. know? So it's kind of this notion of genetically breeding and owning things. Yeah. Um, and that's why places like Australia and especially New Zealand, because they are island cultures, they, they do have the cordon sanitaire. Like they, they simply, you are not allowed to bring food in. You're yeah. not allowed to keep no cuttings, no animals, no whatever. Um, and we'll see how long they can maintain that. You yeah. know, because the, the the Great Barrier Reef is is truly, truly at risk. And the only news I've heard about it in the past month is that Uber, you know, now has, you know, those little submarines that will take you to see the Great Barrier yeah. Reef. So I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not really yeah. sure if awareness is all we need. And, you know, how do you how do you contain the equivalent of a coral archipelago that yeah. stretches well, it's the sad reality that people, I think, are slowly realizing, you know, these climate change deniers for the past 20 years where it's kind of people are like, oh, we can fix it. And it's like, no, no. You know, if we decided to stop all of our bad habits right now, the lasting impact of everything we'd still done the past few years is still going to screw all this up. Yeah, I think that I think people are really. And again, to bring it to your larger thesis, travel does make you aware of it, right? Like yeah. you're. How many people are dying on Everest? Not because it's risky, but because there's 10,000 people lined up to yeah. climb to the top. Like you're like, this is a false Which thing. Is another just... And you're, you're getting to the point where um, with some of the current policies where public parks are being um, like public land is being opened up for mining or forestry yeah. or whatever. Thanks Trump. Like we're getting, we're getting to the point where um, I don't think people have realized how we're, we're about to lose things that simply when they're gone, they're just not gone. There is no, no. bringing it back. Like yeah. once it's gone, it's just gone. And, and, you know, I think that Jurassic Park has not helped in this kind of notion. I'm like, we're not going to just genetically engineer, like, you know, a return when we're ready. No. So it's sort of, it'll be, it'll be curious. And I do think it's, it's not even your generation. I think it's the generation after you that's really going to have to confront yeah, Gen Z. all of this stuff. And it's like, they're going to be so pissed, so pissed. I mean, it's, there's no way for that generation to have to deal with the impacts of climate change and actually, you know, what we're seeing in, in America now, like basically corn is done like this year, yeah. you know, they can't plant it. And, but you see Too the wet. ridiculousness that they are still trying to plant it because if they don't plant it, they won't get their insurance money back. Yeah. And this is on top of the tariffs and all of this things that's going on. So you're kind of looking at people going, this is now going to become the new norm. Yeah. And that kind of instability is what we fought against, you know, for so long. And that's what globalization kind of in theory was about. And I think that, um, I think what we're going to, to always see is people literally wanting to get back to some form of roots and some yeah. form I of so. self-reliance, but also being open to things from around the world, you know, not isolation. So it'll it'll be kind of curious. I mean, we have to remember this is still really the internet is the publicly accessible internet is twenty years old, right? Yeah. And this is the first time we're struggling with misinformation or too much access or yeah. the equivalency of things. And uh, you know, we'll we'll have to wait and see whether or not travel remains as affordable as it is because people complain about the cost of flying to places now. But when I was a child you know it was a big thing to pay for a ticket to go to europe you oh know, yeah like it was a it was thousands and thousands of dollars and there was no way around it yeah. now you know you've you've shown me you know i can fly halfway around the world for 600 bucks and that's both good and not good yeah. 
you know, so, so we'll see. And speaking of travel, so when I've mentioned travel that you've done with work, you don't take vacations, do you? No. <laughs> what, do you remember the last time you took a vacation? No, it, because I, do, I think that, you know, I've, uh, when I go into a company and it's my own fault, when I go into a company, I, I come in, I'm brought in because it's a, a period of intense change. And so yep. I've always kept myself open to never knowing where I'm going to go. But I, I have definitely indulged myself by staying an extra day yeah. here and there. Little and adventures. Yeah. I think that if I go on vacation, I just automatically think that that's something I'm going to have to plan for in advance. And then, <laughs> of course, somebody's going to want me to do something during that period. So then I'll cancel. Like, you yeah. know, and so no. I think that it is, it is definitely, um, it's been interesting because I feel that I'm, experiencing stuff all the time just because I do add that extra day or I yeah I do get in a car with a friend that I've made and go you know four Explore. hours that way kind of thing and I think people you know are really always proud to show off where, where they're absolutely where they live so um, I've considered it very lucky but yeah no I don't I, I think that that everybody is very concerned for me that I don't I don't take vacation <laughs> but then again you all you also know when to take a break you know sometimes I'll just take a day off yeah or... and I think that I, I do not I do not want to sound like a sop by saying this but it's like exultant is really and the my, the career that I've had is stuff I really enjoy doing yep. and I think that I think that it just happens that the life I lead you know including the fact that I tend to move from city to city with each job um is just I I love living this way so I really enjoy my life yeah um I don't think of my life and my work as stuff I need to take a vacation from I mean I do wish I would see friends and family more often yeah but uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's always kind of nice to drop in for a day or two. But that's the dream, isn't it? To live a life that it doesn't feel like you're working, you're just living? In theory, but I think that people, I think I'm truly lucky. I think I really like yeah. what I do. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm made to do what I do. Yeah. Like my, my skills aligned with my desires, which I don't think happens all the time. No. Um, but I think that people right now, they... I'm not sure if everybody really gets what it is that they would do if they could choose. No, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think that, I think it also changes, you know? So for me, architecture was always very freeing. And my mother says that I said it when I was a child Mm -hmm. is that I knew that I got bored relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, architecture is one of those degrees where I can have a skill, I can have a view on how I can change the world. And project to project, what I'm working on will change. So I won't get bored, yeah. right? So it's kind of, I never wanted to be the guy who was doing houses in the suburbs. Like that was never, you know, the mission. And um, I do think that it, I, I have been very lucky. It's been very difficult. It's been very hard. I, I definitely overwork. I definitely have boundary issues <laughs> with work. But it's, um, I find it fascinating. I, I, I love the kind of, I love the, I love the life I have in the little, luxuries that it affords absolutely and and so on those quick one day you know maybe two day adventures you've you've done Mm -hmm. the past you know your entire history of travel any of them really stick out to you as memorable i i think all of them have been all of them have been memorable but i think that what's kind of interesting is that i i do often find now that i love the little town four hours out of some city where you just see some of the most like amazing and I'm not talking about it just from shops I'm saying like you know you find these towns where like just amazing crap is happening and you're like this is just incredible and I get why you want to live here you know and I think people are becoming um more okay 
more okay with that. And like the new, the new world city phenomenon that is happening globally where, you know, we're seeing talent of your generation um, not want to live in New York and not want to live in L.A., but they will want to live in Venice or they will want to live in Seattle or Vancouver or, or Copenhagen Plano, or Plano or Austin, you know, yeah. like it's, it's sort of, it's kind of one of those things where the most talented uh, people for this generation's needs are, are choosing to live still in a city, but a city that is more understandable yeah. and has more individual character. Yeah. And, and as we record this in your apartment in New York city, yeah. um, you know, speaking of living and travel, and you said you always move around with where you work. Yeah. If you could live anywhere in the world right now, where would you want to be? Um, it's a good question. I love, and this is where the township kind of thing comes in. Yeah. Like I love uh, a community called Bronte Beach in Sydney. I think it's almost paradise for me. I do love Toronto, even though I think Toronto has grown past what I remember it as. Um, there are uh, there is a town in Italy that I really love called Arezzo, which I think many people will know, but is um, uh, they're all places that kind of are near really busy hubs, but sort of have also elevated the not relaxing, elevated that kind of idea that your day to day life is very calm. Yeah, you know, it's really beautiful, and um, you, know, you know, Sydney has a thousand beaches. Yeah, but you know, Bronte is is just one of those communities that just kind of you feel like it's just absolutely perfect for what you want um but when i was younger you know i only wanted to live in a global capital like you know and and you know i lived in the meatpacking district in the 80s which was the most frightening place in the universe but it was part of the energy of new york at the time was the fact that new york was dangerous right and and as you became a new yorker you you became more street smart that's not true anymore no. you know so and there is there is a bit of a vanillaing out of you know uh when tourists come and instead of coming to see what it is we make things that appease the tourists yeah. you know what i mean so it's like the disney worldification of world cities yes and and i think nothing more than broadway has yeah. done that you know what i times mean square. where it's like everything is just you know times square was prostitutes and shuriken and you know broadway was really intellectual and beautiful in its own sort of society and now it's like everything is a remake of a disney cartoon and you know uh times square is just heaving with people and i don't really know what they're doing in times square yeah uh taking pictures naked cowboys billboards yeah so it's all good I, I think we're seeing that in not just New York, but other world cities. Absolutely. Especially with tourism. And I think that's what travel. I think that's the downside of travel. Absolutely. Right? And more than anything, too, it's also you're seeing that cities are becoming really, really expensive. I mean, Manhattan is an island of rich people now. Like yeah. there's no like the thing that was beautiful in the 80s was the Upper East Side was wealthy. Absolutely. Everybody else lived on the island. That's where my dad grew up. Yeah. So you know? it's sort of like and it was it's now you're you're it's it's Harlem is expensive. Yeah. yeah. So in the end, you kind of keep looking. I'm like, where do the regular people live? Yeah. And um, not in Manhattan anymore. No. And then this um, Sydney is another great example, uh, only because I've been there recently. Where, you know, this flow of international money to buying property and making it very expensive, and then nobody living there, especially from Asia. Well, and you know, before Asia, it was Russia. Before Russia, it was you know, it was always from somewhere. Yeah, Britain. But now it is really big chunks of money, very broadly applied. Yeah. Um, make cities not only more expensive but they're they're oddly empty you yeah. know so it's sort of like you know you're you're finding people commuting 
two, three hours to get to work. And that statistically has been shown around the world to lead to much like very elevated levels of uh, domestic abuse, child abuse. Like it's like it's, it becomes this whole thing like where you're sacrificing so your family can have a better life, but then you're never there. You know, and, and you come home and they want everything from you and you just spend your just entire nuts. day making nuts. their existence in possible. the car in, in the, the car. car so so it is uh, so I think to get back to your question it's like I I do wish that I could um, I'm not sure if I want to live in Hong Kong but I would yeah. you know Hong Kong back in the day I really would have loved to have lived there for a while um, I would have loved and because I'm you know European you know the notion of living almost anywhere in Europe yeah. appealing in its own way yeah um and i think now we are like i i do want to spend more time if i can visiting uh northern european absolutely countries yeah so i think that's scandinavia is one of my favorite places yeah and i think it's Period. just a, it's just interesting because you do get there and it is sort of still very um uh of of the place like that the, sure. you know the attitudes are very sort of different and yeah. very there you yeah. know so and iceland has turned into a i think this is something that that I actually want to gauge your opinion on is that Instagram has really, yeah. you know, exploded travel and you yeah. and I, you know, you, we, sh- we share images all the time of like cool sure. things we see, whether it's art or yep. places. And there's this idea going around that there are some places that we shouldn't geotag that sure. we shouldn't say, it should say like, here's a beautiful Vista somewhere in Norway, yep. but I'm not gonna tell people where it is because I want to, I want to, you know, keep this place sacred. But yeah. the other side of that is saying, no, it's important for people to go and see these places because you're not only bringing in tourism dollars, we also may be able, able to raise awareness to, you know, certain sure. issues. But I think it's like a, such a catch-22. I think that's a really, side. I think that's a really capitalist yeah. uh, idea. Like, you know, in the end, you kind of do look at some of, the, you know, I, I don't laugh, of course, because it's tragic, but, you know, you, you find it funny where, somebody scales the mountain and knows to stand on that stone to take that selfie, which a billion people have taken. So it's almost like proof that you did it too. But you're, I do love, I forget the photographer's name and that's a shame because it was a brilliant thing, but he was just, (laughs) he was overlaying images on Instagram of sort of saying like, here's the picture of the Brooklyn bridge that apparently everybody takes. And they just like lying, lining like, you know, 10,000 of them over one another. And you're you're kind of looking at them going like, that is the most ridiculous thing, but it's, it's equally true of any culture where people go like, Oh, this singer or this actress totally is my style. And you're like, that is (laughs) absolutely not true. Right. But it, it's kind of, it is again Kardashianization of stuff where yeah. like I, now when people go and take the selfie, you're kind of going, is that a memory or is that proof that you did it? Or is, did you actually look at what you did, you know, or was it, you know, something you checked off the list? And I think that's really generation dependent because I think generation below me, Gen Z mm-hmm. are especially the check off the list thing. Yes. And as a photographer, um, and you know I travel a lot with a camera, and I see this all the time. And I was actually talking to Chris Burkhardt, who's a, who got most of his following from social media. Sure. And he was kind of debating about this internally with himself. He said, you know, I, I bring these places to the world. And he said, some of the places that I found in Iceland are now these massive tourist spots. Yeah. And he's like, that is because I posted that photo online and well, told people where it was. But like, who the fuck went to Iceland? Like, yeah. you know, like in the end, like you keep looking at people going, if you knew that Reykjavik was in Iceland, you were already ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah. Then if the one plane that flew in once a week 
you know, yeah. had space for you, Good you luck. might get to Iceland. Now you keep looking at people going like, are you just fascinated by the fact that you can get a really bad white bread sandwich and like drive on one road around the entire, like, yeah. what is it you want, you know, from the experience of going to Iceland, if not saying I went somewhere remote, yeah. right? But it's, it's bizarre because I think that people forget that before the iPhone, how old's the iPhone? Like uh, 2005, so okay. 14 years. So the thing that's interesting for me is before that, no one walked around with a camera. No. No one. You know, the height of people having cameras that you took a photo in the moment was the Polaroid generation. Absolutely. Right? And then maybe the disposable camera. But yeah. you had no idea what you were fucking shooting, right? Mm. Apologize for that. But, you know, it's like okay. it was just it was almost like getting the photos developed was like part of the discovery of like, oh, wow, I totally missed that. Or like, whose butt is that? Or is this my film? <laughs> yeah. You know, whatever. Now it's like we've we've unleashed, a you know multiple generations that have a camera with them at all times. Yeah. That was never true. And it's beautiful ever, ever true. and terrifying. Terrifying. Because at the same time that we gave them the camera, we gave them the platform to share that mm. image. And right? the sharing, which I, I think people say it's like, now that people have cameras, they want to share it. And I say, no, the sharing platforms exist, so they want to be part of the game too. Yes, and then we, but we've also then given them a form of photography that they can edit. Yes. Right, so it's all of that stuff. You had a disposable Yep. camera from Kodak you would click it you would literally hear the mechanism working to advance the film a beautiful beautiful sound <laughs> and you would take it get it developed you'd often forget that you'd put it you know you'd go back yeah. months later to get what 12 15 photos yep and that was it that's what you had you know mm -hmm. if your hair looked messed up or your eyes were closed, so that, that trip to Rome was memorialized by a picture of you looking like an idiot with something that you wanted to take a photo of off to the side, <laughs> you know? So the, I love the, that. the thing, it, 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 it was a lot, like I, I think what's funny is that people used to ooh and ah at the perfect photo. Yeah. Like that's, well, that's why, beautiful. that's why like you're like looking at, you know, the old National Geographic's awards and stuff like that. Oh, you're just yeah. like, that's a crazy ass photo. Like yeah. somebody carted a real camera up a mountain with a tripod and sat there for four days trying right. to catch this this kind of perfect image. And I, I mean, even when I went to Cyark, so 90s, photography was mostly learn how to develop film, yep. go into the dark room, da-da-da-da. Mm -hmm. Understand you're going to blow your Ooh. entire year of tuition buying film to get the shot you Absolutely. want. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the one story I'll tell, and I won't say her name because it was a truly humiliating experience for her, I'm sure, is that I... Uh, you know, I went to Europe uh, with some friends and uh, one of the young ladies who was with us went to town, borrowed her brother's camera, yeah. <clears throat> bought the lead, the lead uh, case to store her film in, yep. you know, wanted to develop them when we got back home and she made everyone's life hell. Because yeah, it sure. was literally like, let's run here, take a photo, but we got to get going to the next. Like, I don't think she ever saw the monuments with her own eyes, right? Because yep. she had her own little list of things to do. And then we got back home and just poetic, beautiful, universal justice. She had was not a camera person, so she forgot to take off the internal cap on the oh thing. God. So she had something like 50 rolls of film, which I don't know how expensive they were, and three months of being in Europe not a single exposed black. frame right so wow. so i was just like yeah that that was an oddly satisfying thing but, but to i have think happen. that's what made photography such a 
uh, you know, sought after category 20, 30 years Absolutely. ago. But I think that that, that shows that even inherently, this is before selfie culture, this kind of notion of taking the image to prove that you were there yeah. is sometimes more important to people than actually just traveling oh, and just 100%. experiencing. Right? And that's, and that's why when half time I travel now, I, uh, my, my rule when I travel to new places is yeah. I only bring my, my full DSLR half the time. The other half the time I have my iPhone in my pocket. Obviously if there's a really cool photo I want, I pull out the iPhone. It takes a really, really good photo, right? You know, not DSLR quality, but a really good photo. No, it takes a great photo. And, uh, and then with the editing kind of programs and everything, like you're like, it's fine. You could almost, yeah. you could almost be standing in the dark and take a good photo. Absolutely. But if you look at people and go like, where was your favorite dumpling shop at the night market? in blah 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 like hong kong and they're like what it's like i stayed at the hyatt and yeah you know, went to had the pool my on the continental roof. breakfast and yeah. exactly and so yeah. you're kind of you're kind of looking at them going like well you can do that in albuquerque or wherever you're from like yeah. there's no there's no reason to go there yeah to remake your day-to-day routine yeah so one of the one of the things there are certain places in the world i can't go because it just breaks breaks my heart um and recently when i went to jakarta yeah um the people who f- who brought us there owned, you know, fancy fancy hotel. What that I don't know whether it was a, um, it was a global brand, so fancy hotel. And the day that we got there, massive rainstorm. Looking out of my room, the entire community, everything visible from my room was little shacks that were effectively underwater. Like I literally watched kids being floated around in buckets. Yeah. So not a little water, like water that was six feet high. And the juxtaposition of this marble and luxury and crystal and this and very, very first world and that outside your window and the fact that that didn't really seem to bother anyone was truly, it freaked me out, right? Like you're, you're, you leave the hotel and you're in your air conditioned car and you see a family of six on one moped with like babies strapped to the front bumper and like, you know, the mother breastfeeding a child while holding two other children while holding onto her husband, weaving through six lanes of traffic. Yeah. What was you're like the cheapness of life that came out wrong. The, the notion that people really do take incredible risks in every moment of every day when, yeah. when they live in those places and you know Jakarta's got, I think it's one of it's probably the most populated city, but so much of it is unreported. It's estimated that like twenty million people, like yeah, no, it's, easily it's live massive. In Jakarta. It's crazy. Um, um, but then you know you get to Mexico City, and it's different but the same. Yeah. But then you get to Tokyo, Kyoto, Kobe, and it is the most populated city, and you're kind of like, well, everything seems to kind of be under control here. Yeah. But then again, it's because they're Asian, like they're, you know, yeah. the, the formality and the density of, of living space has their it's po- politeness is enforced because yeah. that's what keeps people sane, you know? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's interesting. It's interesting that people just want to stay in a Hyatt, you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. And, funny. and I was talking to one of my mom's best friends from, from her PhD program and he grew up in Bombay, which most people know is Mumbai. And um, he went back to visit his family right after that uh, magnet built Antilla, that billion dollar house right on top of a slum in mm-hmm. Bombay. And he's mm-hmm. like, he's like, it's, it's, it's ironic because right outside is a place that I used to walk around as a kid in the street and yeah. it's, it's actual shacks. He's like, if you've seen Slumdog Millionaire, that's pretty accurate to what it actually looks like. Yep. And then there's this billion dollar house, like billion with the B mm-hmm. that, that rises 600 something feet above the thing and has waterfalls falling off of it and things like that. And people are just like, Oh, well, you know, 
he he worked for it. He was successful. Bill no, realized like, it's, it's he made his money off of these people living in the streets. It's interesting though, just because you know, in many places of the world, still, universal success is a very American concept. Yeah. Right. Where, in the absence of nobility, in the absence of the established families, in the absence of those things, it was kind of like everybody should have a piece of the pie. And we still have this incredible disparity that we're seeing now between the wealthiest and the least. And when you go to these places, it's kind of, you know, an American would go like, how does that guy not get killed in Bombay? (laughs) How how do the people not rise up and like slaughter anything that comes out of that building, right? Um, And, you know, you hear those kind of stories in Brazil where like it's better to helicopter from place to place rather than even barely try to touch the road. Um, not, it's just in the haves and have nots in most of the world, most people don't have a lot and they can look at somebody who has money and it's sort of family connection success. Yeah. Uh, but there must still be, there is absolutely no association that they could have that too. That is a simply a separate thing. And that's the American dream, right? Yes. And I don't, I don't think anybody, (laughs) In most places of the world, people are like, no, like, that's just some dick who decided he needed to build his house here. Yeah. They're like, why here? But I think it's because Americans compare themselves to, I think, I forget who said it. It might have been, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name. But there's a quote that says, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the truest sentiments of the American culture that exists. Always. You know, it's like go on Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. It's comparison. Not right. only people want to take the same photo in the same place, but you know, this idea of like Kim Kardashian has somehow become like the the, the perfect idea of a woman's body. So you know, yeah. young women are are trying to get you know lip injections <laughs> and you know butt implants <laughs> and make their hips like these crazy thin things using I just, unsafe. I think it's. I think it's means. I think it's even more. You know, just the fact that I think, um, you know, they talk about statistically in some of the research that we do, um, starting to bucket people as far as 25 as still equating sort of mentally to teen. Uh, Because people are, especially people who are active um, on Instagram, they're very afraid to meet in person simply because you know, they are, they are not reflecting their actual life. They are reflecting something else. And so, uh, you see young men going to the gym and dressing and whatever way earlier than ever before. And young women with makeup and stuff like that and filters having this really airbrush perfection to everything they put out there. And then, you know, meeting in person uh, is something they avoid. So you have people in their early twenties who've never had sex with anyone and have never had an actual relationship yeah. in a more traditional format. But they prefer the online variant of that. Uh, absolutely. But it's, it's kind of, it's one of those things where you're kind of, you're also looking at people who are losing that part of their life where they're young and they're, they look as good as they're ever going to look. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But because it's not perfect, they're not actually enjoying that. So you're going to get a lot of really pissed off middle-aged people in a couple of decades where they they um you know the the history that they created is false yeah and um and so just kind of you know culminate and wrap things up um someone's outside dropping Mm -hmm. bottles um i'm gonna ask you a few just like quick questions they can you know you can answer them in 10 words or ten thousand words um if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on yourself what problem would you try to solve I don't think any problem can be solved with a billion dollars, but 
I think that, uh, I, th I think I've mentioned this to you before, I do think uh, one thing I would like to see come back, especially for Americans, is the Peace Corps. Interesting. I think that that was when America was probably at its most noble, and it allowed students of every level to take the equivalent of what other people now call a gap year, where you basically do nothing. Yeah. Um, and actually go and go to a part of the world where you are actually trying to help yourself. Like yeah. you yourself is trying to help dig the well. You are not, a, you're not able to impose what you think is the perfect society. You're there more like, we need to fix this. Yeah. And I think it's that kind of thing that not only uh, teaches empathy, but it teaches people how, how hard it is to fix pretty basic problems and how sometimes all of the high thinking and, and beautiful ideas fail because you're actually not just going and helping. Yeah. So that's what I think if I had a billion dollars, I would, I would do it to either revive that or bring, bring some institution like that yeah. back online. But as you said, you know, a billion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of it's life, not it's nothing. Money. It's not a lot of money. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, it's sad when you're kind of looking at people going, um, we've become desensitized to, you know, the word billion yeah. and people are starting to say trillion now. And you're like, well, we have to remember that universal healthcare would be a billion number. You know, yeah. it's, it's a doable yeah. thing. And even that we can't find consensus on. And it's weird because most people, they don't want it for anyone. No, it, it's not just about choosing to opt out. It's like, no, I, I just, that's, that shouldn't, that shouldn't happen. But as a quick comment, I mean, my belief on the reason why healthcare in America is just so screwed is because, mm -hmm. you know, America is built on the culture of have and have not, and people want to go from nothing and have something, but you have to have the people that still have nothing in order to be like, Hey, I've made it from where Fair. they are Fair. to where I am now. Sure. And then the whole idea of healthcare is like, Oh, I have nice healthcare, but why should someone that didn't work their ass off every single day get the sure. same healthcare as me? Sure. And it's a, but it's, you know, a still, I think that yeah. there's a, <laughs> there's a, a lot that can be improved just from the standpoint that I know Americans who are, I know people all over the world who are wealthy and don't have a relationship with a physician. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, totally. it's a, you know, it's one of those things we always check in the wealthiest communities that we uh, run through our assessment model. You know, all you have to do is go to the local hospital and ask um, how many molars were extracted in the emergency room and how many diabetic amputations happen. And you will find that in the very wealthiest, people somehow feel that the emergency room is free. And that's even though it's paid for by taxes. Yeah. Um, so when they're there, you will see that a person who goes to the emergency room to have a molar extracted means they've never had a dentist and they probably have never had a physician that they have seen regularly. Yeah. So it's just, it's basically perpetual triage. No. And, and uh, it's sad. It's sad. Because I, I had a friend in college and he had maybe what you and I would call like a mild fever. Uh-huh. And his parents, you know, he, he very wealthy, like he drove a hundred thousand sure. dollar car around campus. Um, and, uh, has he like, he called his mom, his mom like freaked out. Obviously like he maybe has like a 99 degree fever, like sure. something you and I would, my dad would just be like, go have some Gatorade and pass out for 12 hours. Right. <laughs> right. So he was, he was, his mom was so worried. His mom, his mom called me and said, I need you to take his car and drive him to the emergency room. And they literally looked at him and they're like, okay, here's some Motrin. You're going to take this and right. drink some fluids right. and just don't go out and drink tonight. Yeah. And it was like, 
I, I thought to myself, because I saw people in the emergency room, because this is rural Arizona, I went to school. Sure. There were some people that had, they looked like had some serious shit going on. Yeah. And I was just like, you just took up the time of a doctor yeah. to basically tell you, what I told you, Motrin. Uh, to get Motrin, um, <laughs> when they could have been helping these people that have nothing, that have actually something wrong with them. Yeah, but it's, it's sort of like, you know, it, it's also that weird thing where you're looking at people going so effectively you could afford it, but you're rolling the dice. You'd rather be ignorant of what signs are that something is not right yeah. with your body and you just panic whenever it's anything other than yeah. optimal, right? Or whatever passes for optimal. So it's sort of, it is a, it is, it is interesting. I mean, there's, there's deep reasons behind things and patent law and the length of time it takes to approve a drug and the rise of generics and all of that stuff where, you know, there are, there are reasons why people behave in certain ways, including the companies behind them. But it is, it's also, it's been a problem for a long time and somebody should have just, yeah. you know, fixed it. And you and I could probably talk all day about healthcare and just yeah, difference. And, and yeah, I think sure. that the only thing that I'll and say. And I'm sure get death threats. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, get death and, and, and you as someone, you know, I, I have had heart surgery and two other kinds yep. of surgeries, which are very rare for someone my age. But, yep. you know, you have dealt with, like my father has, you know, yep. cancer multiple yep. times. Yep. Um, but, you know, not to get into that, just saying that I think the biggest thing I can tell anyone is that. Um, preventative medicine is the best kind of medicine. Yeah, and I think that really that kind of notion of advocating for your own health, yes, as opposed to just uh, f- feeling that you're a victim yeah. of something that just—it's not yourself. It's, it's, it's you not a—it's not a some deity somewhere that doesn't yeah. like you. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like there's not. I, I said this to one someone who's like one of my friends who had serious abdominal pain of having uh, appendicitis, something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, well, I just feel, you know, it's like unmanly to go to get it checked out. I'm like, no, there's nothing wrong in you going and seeking help or treatment. Well, as long as, as long as you're comfortable with dropping dead in the middle of the floor, like, like if that's manly, then great. Then you're headed that way. So yay. Like, you know, what do I do with the body? Like, you know, it's, it's just, it's kind of a ridiculous thing where you're looking at people going, I don't want you to be a child and complain when you have a fever. Yeah. But on the other hand. You know, when you're in staggering pain, yeah, there's no sense of pride in that anymore. Like I'm, like, what are what are you doing? Like, you know, don't be a moron. And uh, okay, so moving gears, next question: Do you have any like a daily routine that you like to follow? Uh, You know, I I know you're like me. Some you you change, you experiment, you do different things. Is there anything that you have to do every single day, or that you really enjoy doing? I just I I you know that I read compulsively. Yeah. Right, and I think that for me. Uh, the internet, the iPad, like all that stuff means that um, I've, I've gone, you know, I, I find myself becoming an old man where there's some things I want to now read in print. Yeah. There's stuff that the internet enables a lot of skimming of reading. Uh, but I think that that reading, you know, I don't have a television. I don't, I, yeah. you know, it's like I, I just, I, I think that I'm just every day, no matter how busy I am, I feel, I feel that I have to take the time not to dip into the news but just to actually try to uh read understand things and connect the dots between some stuff so i find that um i think that i've come out the other side where i think i i surf the net uh very proactively like i I think i follow chains of interest (laughs) yeah so i think that i need to do that every day I, i just because everything else i think is just living and working and stuff like that and i think that feeding the machine of like background information that is sort of sorted out is, is really important to me. It's kind of how I, how I think I, I can help uncover adjacencies that people don't expect. Yeah. Like I, I often say that in the work that I do, part of the luxury that I have is I'm allowed to find 
solutions that lie between verticals in business. It's like, it's not part of marketing. It's not part of operations, but there's something in the middle that requires them to work together in a, in a new way that really solves the problem by completely reimagining what the answer is and even redefining the problem. But I think that if you, if you're not interested in broad knowledge as well as deep knowledge, you struggle to find those things. Yeah, and, and also you're encyclopedic, so that does yes, help. that does help. Um, and I think that's one of the things that you and I first got along with is, mm-hmm. is you know, I'll tell the story quickly, but I met Francesco because I was working at the Arcteryx brand store in Soho. That's right. And you were working with Sennheiser at the time. Yeah. And Great you were brand. putting on an event with Sennheiser and Arcteryx where we're going to mm-hmm. show a movie in this cool yeah. ambient sound studio they had. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I remember you were leaving, and then... I was I was in a bad mood. I hadn't had coffee yet. It was like seven a.m. in the morning. You know, working retail, just left college, trying to find purpose in life. Right. Uh, and you just paused and looked at me, and you're like, "Can you tell me more about this Valence stuff?" And I think I went on some sort of the equivalent of like an epic poem story about yes. the length of Valence for <laughs> yes. like ten minutes. And I, I don't know if you also saw that encyclopedic knowledge in yeah. me and like passion for it. Yeah. But you were just like, you know, I think I asked you something along those lines. Like I was like bluntly, I was like. So what do you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, what makes you tick? You were relatively assertive in that first meeting, but it was kind of fascinating because uh, you you told Storytel, you, like you, you story told about the product in a way that somebody who truly understands because you would you would kept dipping between high and low like you're like this thing well you can take it to the north pole but it's because of this little stitching that like you know this blind woman in mongolia showed somebody how to do it like it was just (laughs) sort of it was so high low that it was um and it's all true it's all yeah and it's it's sort of that's where you can automatically tell people who are bullshitting versus the people who actually do it yeah you know what i mean and that's where um, again, I, and I hate that I keep saying maker culture because we need a better name for that. But that's what's kind of interesting. Like people it's are not like, steam. It's like you that. know, it's like yeah, I'm like no, I really want to know about this thing. I mean, I hope more people uh, start to explore things other than coffee and beer. But you know, it's it's all about you know, that's not said to talk it down. That's like that's the stuff that you can literally make in your house. Like you can yeah, you can you can kind of you know MacGyver it. Um, some of the other things really, and that's where that sort of notion of, a, I think bringing back the nobility of apprenticeship, especially while we still have people how to who know how to do something correctly yeah. is, is what's really interesting. And that's why like, you know, my fascination with, you know, brands like best made where yeah. it's just such a, I mean, the man who started that brand, you know, wonderfully, um, was, you know, a creative director. Yeah. And, you know, he started to associate products. And he's an agency, them. wasn't he? Yeah. And it's, but it was fascinating because, you know, yeah. of course he famously, you know, they sell an ax and yeah. that, that was the, the hero product. Right. Exactly. And, and in Manhattan, yeah. you know, but, uh, but conversely, he's now sold that brand, I think a year or two ago to a company, um, for quite that, a lot of money. Yeah. I yeah. I, I mean, I think he did well, Modest and, amount. you know, like but 10 million I think so. that they, that they, um, created, uh, spider silk like they crack the code on how to do artificial spider silk and yep. so they it's just fascinating because their first intersection came from a collaboration where the brand helped them yep. promote this technical thing that yep. they'd done but yeah i think it was a tie like a, i think a, it was a, tie, a necktie but it was also like a one made for like the mountain like yeah, paul like bunyan man the, yeah exactly that you could sort um, of haul a haul a case of something up a hill right <laughs> and this is best made co uh, which is a new york based like made in the usa brand yeah. um I think yeah, just Google Best Made Co. It'll pop I think, up. Yeah, no, it's like it's it's basically it's it's a really wonderful brand that is really about outdoor lifestyle enabling products. Yeah. But he really talks about things that are just made in a quality way by the original company. Yeah. Um. That that um. 
sort of is more about getting outside. And that's why you and I love Valence. Uh, yeah. Valence being the, you know, I'd say not even, not even black label, like the white label of Arcteric itself, because essentially they looked at uh, this famous Japanese designer and said, uh, you have carte blanche make the the nicest, or maybe it's not Japanese, but, but, but like make the nicest thing possible. And, and you know, why shouldn't a $1,600 peacoat that most people buy at Barney's that isn't waterproof, that doesn't look good, like why, why can't we make it waterproof and lightweight and usable and technical? Well, it was definitely interesting because it, you know, it's just something that doesn't, that, that's that evolution of performance gear where people are saying, <clears throat> I want something that has the technical performance of something that I could climb up a mountain with, but I'm living in a city and I want it to be urban and modern and clean. So, cause we're not all San Francisco or Portland where you can go into the office in a, you know, a puffy vest and then be climbing later that day. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's interesting when people sort of really fuse that knowledge together to kind of make these um, really vigorous intersections where again, because of the quality and because of the cost, the people really invest a lot of time in both the aesthetics and the performance because that's the coat they're going to be wearing for the next decade. You know, they yeah. love that coat. Exactly. So that's where you don't need 20, you know. And so it's 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 really interesting. And um, uh, I have to say, you really let me down that you don't know where the designer was from because of the valence, uh, valence yeah. and Arcteryx I'm gonna, was... I'm gonna, I'm gonna, no, yeah. no, no, it's too late now. It's like, it's like you should, you should know <laughs> I mean, since I you love that brand so much, I own so much of it. Uh, yeah. But also, like, I haven't worked there in, in that's just funny in years. And as yeah. as I Google this, but I think while while I look this up, and I will I will try to redeem myself so Francesca doesn't murder me after this <laughs> podcast. But um, I want to finish up with one question, which is: Are there any stories that your your parents used to tell about you as a kid that you know, like, was the story that kind of is a good defining factor of you know who you are and what you did? Um, nothing positive. I mean, I, I come from a huge extended Italian family that for whatever reason was incredibly successful at putting a lot of boys out there. And, um, so in this extended family, it's like everybody else is just very Southern Italian, like, you know, very, uh, you know, dark, Italian looking, you know, very active, rough and tumble, all that stuff. And I was always like the blonde uh, little prince who didn't want to go outside and sort of sat there reading all the time. So I think that uh, my, my parents were just always kind of shocked that it was always um, a curiosity that I resolved by reading uh, that I think is the most uh, consistent characteristic that I think I've had my whole life. Well, I mean, that makes all the sense in the world for yeah, who exactly. you are, you know? Um, <laughs> so it was a really boring kid is basically what I'm saying. So it's sort of like, it was just kind of, um, I think that intellectualism wasn't it cause I was a child, but it was always that kind of notion that getting access to the information then was much harder. Um, you know, and was multiplied incredibly if you owned an encyclopedia set, Yep. you know, so, I think, you know, when we when we talk about the big wealthy American families uh, in history, you know, where f for good or ill, you know, they, you know, the Vanderbilts, the Carnegie's made this money yep. and then 
built the libraries and built that like they yeah. really felt that and they and they made money on a scale that we don't see nowadays no i mean the, the money just before taxation and everything else was yeah. just simply a, an entire order of magnitude i mean yeah. jeff bezos has nothing compared on to carnegie andrew carnegie or, or yeah. you know whatever so the but the thing that was interesting and you know when you're referencing the house in bombay is that the way they gave back yes their homes were beautiful yeah. right but the way that they gave back was truly institution building mm-hmm. you know big things and so that's why i think that it's um it's interesting to see some of the institutions like the peace corps and stuff like that which are successful and yeah. never stopped being successful fading you know so it's sort yeah. of it'll be interesting to see i mean i really appreciate bill gates and the bill uh, and melinda gates foundation yeah. and the giving pledge. Um, the giving pledge yeah. and all that stuff but but actually you know i love that somebody like bill gates literally goes like let me talk to you about the value of a toilet let me talk to you about, you know, the value of birth control, you know, like Sudan, fixing things know? pretty specifically, you know, like, like we need yeah. more netting. We need more mos- mosquito netting. And I've you long know? said, you know, I, I, Bill Gates as a computer programmer and the founder of Microsoft, I think he's a fucking asshole. Sure. But Bill Gates <laughs> as an inventor and uh-huh. a world philanthropist, I think uh-huh. he's one of the most brilliant we've ever had. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that it's, it's the application of capital understanding that you cannot spend it and you've preserved all of your future generations are going to be just fine. Yeah. The fact of not giving it away, but actually choosing to say, this is what I want to direct the money towards because I really want to try to fix this thing and not needing it to be pharaonic, not needing it to be, you know, I want to give, you know, an internet connection to everyone in India. It's like, I, I really need to get, you know, antibiotics here. And that's why, uh, Jeff Bezos still has refused to sign the giving pledge because mm-hmm. his own, you know, belief system is is like Elon Musk. He believes that, you know, the human race is going to space some rather sooner rather than later, so might sure. as well start that. So he puts all his money into Blue Origin, which is his right. own version right. of SpaceX. And right. so he's just like, I'm not gonna sign the giving pledge because my money is is destined to this company because I think they're sure. gonna do great things. Sure. And I think that, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, I just wanna know um, what the price of the tickets he sells are. Because yeah, that's all great. You know what I mean? And I think that um it is it is kind of interesting that we're back in that era of not the robber baron but people who have a lot of money and they really oh, yeah. they feel that they have the answer and they're pursuing that answer uh and if it works great and if it doesn't work great yeah you know it, it still advances stuff but it is kind of you do sometimes just need the crazy focused elon musk guy yeah who is brilliant and is driven and says no i'm going to do this thing the scary part is where Tesla is now, where the brand recognition is high. Every other car maker really hasn't done electric. And when they do electric, they're doing it in the annoying way of saying, I'm gonna do the electric race car, cause that's yeah. gonna do whatever. But uh, you know, recently I found it very fulfilling that, um, and I'm not gonna say car names, but that Americans were asked, you know, whether or not they would be willing to drive an electric pickup, which yep. which the classic car company said, I'm not going to do SUV SUVs and pickups are what I live in, and that's the, no one's ever going to want anything that isn't a gas, you know. And and Americans were like, of course, like it, if it's got the power and it's got the performance, why would why, I care? Why would I care? Especially yeah. if it's cheaper. In the if it's run. affordable, yeah, it's oh, like yeah. you know. So so in the end, the thing that's funny is that uh, I think that you can really see, especially in the enhanced media today how obvious it is that people are attacking Musk because yes, he's crazy, but, and yes, he's, you know, he says the wrong thing every now and again, but at the end of the day, it's still the company he built from scratch. Yeah. And yes, people invested, 
But in the end, it's now proven the thing that people said couldn't be done. So now everybody wants it. Now everybody says, no, I want electric yeah. cars now. So and they're trying to, to take them down. We, I, I need to take this guy off. Yeah. Because Tesla, Tesla Q, or the shorting of Tesla, has been one of the largest losses of any stock short. I think something like investors to, to date have lost over $10 billion shorting Tesla. Yeah, but and, and the thing that is also interesting is that this poor man is the one who has to figure out, um, and granted he has billions, so like we, yeah. we, we don't, but... Um, you know, he is definitely the one who has to figure out how to make fast charging stations be present enough that people who buy the Tesla have a place to stop at the yes. gas station and then figuring out the, the sort of impulse behavioral management of people not staying more than 20 minutes. Like, yeah. so like he's, he's got to figure out a million different ways to make all this stuff work. And it's like, that's where you see sort of Steve Jobsian kind of. I don't know if that's a word, but you know, I the story I always tell that I think is probably one of the most powerful brand stories that people refuse to focus on is that Steve Jobs is given credit and and it's fused with Johnny Ives for the iPod and then the iPhone and then yeah. all of that stuff iPad. and it's talked about as design and and you know all of the notion of the interface and everything else all of which is true. Mm-hmm. But the real reason that Jobs changed culture is that he was the person who got people to agree to sell media online, yes. digitally, right? He was the one who had to prove to all the companies on universal pricing uh, that the encryption was enough that it wouldn't be copied, that this notion of a file format that wouldn't decay over time, wouldn't endlessly kind of put product out there. and. You know, Microsoft, going back to Bill Gates, years before had the Zune, right? Which was one of the saddest things you've ever seen because, and literally, it was exactly what an iPod does. uh, But because they hadn't figured out the back end, the most critical part, it was acknowledged that if you had a Zune, you were stealing music. The only way you You could could put stuff onto a Zune was to rip it, you know, and all that stuff. So in the end, the, the, you know, that's where you kind of also see the brand stories behind thing being softened to make it more palatable to not only the consumer, but to other companies who want to then, you know, not, not share credit for what they've done, you know? And so when you look at someone like Uber, you know, there, the, the thing that's incredible is that you know, it was basically done with open API stuff. Like anyone yeah. could have done it. It's it's more about, not, not that anyone could have done it. This is not to talk it down, but the kind of idea that that's why Uber had to try so hard to stretch it so far so fast because it's easy to replicate. It's yeah. not, it's not, he didn't build the foundational work. Whereas really today, the entire ecosystem we have of books, music, uh, film, the reason that, you know, Netflix and HBO win awards is, because of Steve Jobs and this yeah. kind of notion of streaming media. And so uh, both a, a blessing and a curse, but uh, you know, definitely it shows you how in a brand archetypal story, people sometimes don't want to actually glorify the core. They want a kind of the easier version and claim it's just aesthetics. Yeah. When realistically, it's not. everybody owes Steve Jobs for that. You know, you know. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's the, the and finish up on this, but there's that poll that uh, people say, "What's the main thing keeping you t- to having an iPhone?" And it's mm-hmm. iMessage. Yeah, totally. You know, it's it's uh, iMessage. Uh, and the the thing that's so strange, it's like I mean, you know, it's like I I barely talk to people as it is. Yeah. 
uh, meaning uh, uh, I, I'm happy to do it one-on-one -on -one and I'm happy to do it from a stage, but try to get me on a phone and I'm like, I, nine tenths of the time will look at my phone ringing and simply choose not to pick it up. I know and, now, it, and now I have had conversations with even people like you where it drives me to distraction, where uh, you will send me a message on iMessage, I will receive, the next one will be a text, the third one will be something via Instagram, and then a WhatsApp note will come up, and I'm like, what the, like, are, like you know, what kind of extended torture sequences, like, what, how, how is this conversation happening? Because in the end, I think that uh, one of the hallmarks of this time, not your generation of this time, is just this real interesting kind of perpetual distraction that everyone can focus yeah. on anything for 10 seconds and that's really it like you know yeah. what i mean and, and yes you'll get back to it but it's it's so funny because i'm often criticized because i write these little novellas on like you know the text i'm just like i want to send it and i want to be done like <laughs> the answer is there yeah. like you know just read the the thing yeah. um and like you and everybody else <laughs> will will literally go like, yes but what color is it i'm like it's in the original message and how big is it it's in the original message like i'm just that's my default statement. I'm like, yep. if I bother to write a message to you, it's there. <laughs> well, and you've also said every, every phone call we have over over an hour, at some point over an hour, you'll you'll say something and you'll just go, um, you say something along the lines of like, Rob, you're not even listening to what I'm saying anymore, are you? And I just go, yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I can tell. The breathing, the breathing gets really regular on the yeah. other end and you could just tell that you're doing something. You're not only not listening to me, you yeah. are actively doing something else, yep. right? But um, yeah, and that's when I fire. That's when I fire you. Yeah, then, you know, then, yeah, it's okay. Next, we, I, we, we I've, I've, you've hired and fired me a few times, <laughs> a thousand times, uh, which is fine because we still keep working together, which exactly. I think is, is everything. But exactly. uh, that's the best thing about at will employment, isn't mm -hmm. it? It is. It is the the glory of the side hustle uh, will always be that. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I, I love that you're doing this 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 sort of podcast. I'm terrified of what I'm going to sound like when you post it. And <laughs> no, certainly, you certainly, excuse me. No one's going to. It sounds listen. great. No one's going to listen to me talk for two hours, but uh, we'll find out. Um, I definitely, yes, I definitely, I do think that, uh, you know, if we go back to your original thesis, I do think that, you know, I'm going to be very fashion now and uh, Diana Vreeland's, you know, the eye has to travel. Yeah. It, that, that kind of thing is, it's sad that maybe things aren't as delightful and surprising to discover anymore. But there is real value to going and more than seeing, actually experiencing. So I, I hope that and I hope that travel becomes that. I think that I hope that people go with the curiosity of how things are different, not how things are the same. So, you know, I, I hope that the kind of travel that you do, even though you do take a lot of photos, um, I yeah. do I do hope that that kind of travel becomes more um, more to comes more to the fore. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Well, well congratulations. Well, thank you. All right. Appreciate it. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation between myself and Francesco Cordois. You can find him online by simply typing in his name. You can find me, as always, online at Rob Auchincloss or at RobAuchincloss.com. And if that's too complicated to spell, at RobIsLost.com. I hope you all have a fantastic day and are enjoying the weather wherever you are. I love you all. Goodbye.